You're listening to episode 156 of the Writing Life podcast from the National Centre for Writing, a weekly podcast for anyone who writes. I'm Simon Jones. And I'm Steph McKenna. It is the 21st of July 2021 here in Norwich as we're recording. How are you doing this week, Steph? I am not too bad. Thank you. Enjoying the sunshine from my window. Yep. Yeah. Thunderstorms later, though, so yeah, don't get too oh, carried away. Oh, well, it was fun while it lasted. Eh? How are you? We've been in a, a slightly quieter period, haven't we? Kind of the, the lull between NNF and the International Literature Showcase and the Early Career Awards. And, but we're now gearing up for the next, next load of exciting things. We are. We never. We don't rest for very long, do we? We might get <laughs> maybe a week or two where the where the workflow's not quite as manic. But we've got lots of really exciting things in the pipeline that I can't wait for us to announce on the podcast and elsewhere. Keep listening, and we can chat about them soon. Yeah. So by the time this episode goes out on Friday, we will have revealed the the next iteration of the Escalator Talent Development Scheme. Yes. So uh, Escalator has been running since 2004. It's one of our longest running programs and it's developed over the years to become a year long period of mentoring, guidance and networking for writers who are based in the east of England. So that's Bedfordshire, Hertfordshire, Essex, Cambridgeshire, Norfolk and Suffolk. And it's for it's a scheme for fiction writers who are at the beginning of their careers. So um, it's a structured period of support for those writers. And we've just opened applications. If you head over to our website, nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk, you'll find Escalator under the resources tab. And as I say, this is a yeah, this is an opportunity for anyone who is unpublished. They're early in their writing career. They're based in the east of England, and you feel that your your voice is underrepresented in some way. So a really key part of this scheme is that we want to make sure that UK bookshelves and the books that are coming out represent the diverse society of many voices that live in this country. So head over to the Escalator page, check out the eligibility criteria and make sure you apply before the deadline of Monday the 30th of August. Yeah, you also find a collection of case studies where we've talked to previous people that have gone through the Escalator scheme. So if you're kind of wondering what kind of a difference it can make and what it actually involves, then do check those out. We did a bunch of podcasts earlier in the year as well, which are well worth a listen. We'll make sure we link to all this stuff down in the show notes. Absolutely. And one one nice bonus actually is um, a good majority of our mentors who are uh, going to be sort of guiding and working with our selected writers throughout the year. Most of them are actually alumni of this scheme. So Megan Bradbury, Michael Doncourt, Owen Nichols and Kate Worsley are all returning as mentors this year, but have previously been writers selected for this scheme and Escalator helped them advance towards publication. So Simon, who have we got on the podcast today? Yeah, so this week we have the return of Sam Ruddock, and he is talking to Tommy Sissons, who is a award-winning poet, political writer, playwright, educator, and he's the editor of Grass Magazine. And Tommy has written A Small Man's England, in which he examines what it means to be white working class in the modern age. Tommy and Sam explore a lot of political concepts and ideas in this one, really diving into the themes of Tommy's book. Thoughts and opinions expressed are, of course, their own, and therefore not necessarily representative of the National Centre for Writing. Okay, all that aside, enjoy the discussion, and do let us know your own thoughts on Twitter or over on our Discord. Well, good morning, Tommy. Good morning. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yes, so... My name's Tommy Sissons. I'm a writer, a poet, and an educator. 
I have just had my uh, debut prose and political essay collection out with Repeater Books. It is called A Small Man's England. It came out in January. And uh, it's what we're here to talk about today. I'm dead happy with it. I'm looking forward to being able to go to live events to do further promotion for it at the moment and gasping to get out there and promote it further. And a fantastic book it is too. Um, Yeah, could you tell us a little bit more about it? Yes, so it is a polemic primarily. It is aimed at every structure that holds uh, neoliberal power within Britain at the moment, and it is investigating white working-class English masculinity and how uh, many of the men in this demographic have fallen into the trap of what I call a small man's England and how that must be overturned uh, and the right and the far right must be challenged in order for the men in this demographic to become part of a collectivist common England Fantastic. And there's, I mean, there's so much to talk about in this and so many different dynamics to take. Mm. I just wonder first if you might tell us what you understand by the kind of term small man's England and how that relates to kind of let's define terms to start with just so that we're all on the same, on the same sheet. Absolutely. So a small man's England in the book is uh, distinctively masculine, uh, regressively nostalgic, uh, and it's a nativist vision of the country and it's fueled by a sort of existential dread of neoliberalism it's a, an act of grabbing at nationality uh, national identity to fill this uh, unconscious void of uh, mourning class consciousness oh, it's always fantastic when you you pick out exactly the same the same phrase to define it that i was so thinking <laughs> yeah. through throughout the book you're you're trying to move towards a sense of working class masculine identity that mm. isn't this small man's England. I think at points you describe it as a common England and all sorts of other phrases. But what 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 would you like to see as the sort of end goal that you're trying to encourage people, uh, encourage mm. and challenge people to to move towards? And how would you understand that? Yeah. So the common England is an authentic socialist collectivist England, um, which isn't specifically linked to just white working class men. It's an England in which there is uh, justice and equality for all. Um, And I believe that it's an England that has to come about as a result of a form of DIY culture in which we build it from the ground up um, ourselves as a population rather than wait for it to be democratically handed to us. Yeah, I think all, all of the most interesting work that's going on pretty much in all sectors at the moment is around cooperatives and social collectives and all sorts of things like that. Absolutely, that, that, yeah. Yeah, just shaping the way we deliver and support each other as people. I'm just re- Before we get into the real meat of it, I'm just really interested in the structure that you've used in the book because you've interspersed mm. these relatively short polemical essays um, mm. on different subjects with... Yeah sort of fictional or first person kind of experiences um that really highlight the the poet in you um they got uh, the language is is very redolent very um poetic but not in that in not, not in that soft way it's in a very very hard beautifully pitched um sense of language used what was what was the intention behind 
that structure and what do you think that allows you to do that just staying as a purely polemical work wouldn't have allowed you to do yeah well there's a sort of multitude of um reasons that i wanted to do that firstly i've always been fascinated by the St George's Cross uh, and what it stands for and the different ways in which it is received within different communities and the sort of myth of St George. And I wanted to reimagine the sort of hangover of that myth through one central character who is at the same time uh, multiple characters. So the characters um, in all of these vignettes, I suppose they'd be, Uh, are all called George, and I'm not sure myself whether they are the same person or whether they're a multitude of different people, Um, but they're all in some way uh, a vague embodiment of St George as uh, he would be today um, in this sort of neoliberal landscape, and it's a sort of brutal reimagining of him with a level of irony, of course, because, uh, of course, St George was... Turkish. Um, So I wanted to play with that idea, but then I wanted to sort of lace the whole text together almost as if a dreamscape, because I think that sort of idea of um, a regressive atavistic England is like a dream. It is a disillusionment. Uh, And so I wanted to lace the whole text together like a dream, but also show the fragmentation of the country uh, through a very fragmented uh, and almost eclectic text. We're in a a postmodernist, I'd argue, um, very fragmented society. And there's uh, there's been a dispersal of these sort of grand narratives that we used to have running through culture, through literature, uh, to give meaning to our lives. And I don't think that we have that anymore. And certainly we don't have any sort of unified coherent aims or identity amongst the working class um so it was important to get that sense of fragmentation in there through the structure of the book as well that's a really interesting um set of explorations so so first up i don't think there's any spoilers in this but first up we have teenager called george who's just stabbed a, a you know a rabid dog and so is the sort of portrayal of george stabbing the dragon and yeah that yeah. kind of runs through and we have him later searching around online for to stream the football and mm. um and all sorts of other scenarios which just very very quickly um i think what they do for me is they as well as all of the things you talk about they they break down the ideas and and they unify the heart with the ideas so that yeah, it's all very well reading a polemic which talks about the need to understand, to embrace, to challenge and reel back segments of white working class masculine culture from far right and nationalistic politics. Mm. But it also does so within a very humanising um, way, which is one of the things you talk about throughout the book and the need for respect and, and genuine brotherhood at the heart of any of any change that you might want to want to encourage absolutely you talk about the the breakdown in cultures um i want to come on to the the working class specific culture first but just on a mm. kind of national level the yeah. breakdown of cultures do you do you perceive that there are cultures at the moment shared cultures at all 
I think that we are more divided perhaps than we have ever been. Um, and I would position um, the time in which this sort of started in the 1980s um, with Thatcher and the governance since and the the rise of neoliberalism um, and postmodernism in which there is no unified identity really um, for anyone. I think that we've become a very individualistic country and there's a level of one-upmanship that comes along naturally within that um, when people start to think of themselves or the individual uh, as the most important thing in life and uh, don't think widely about society, then that will lead to that sense of fragmentation. So there's little pockets of identity and there's, of course, little pockets of community, which is fantastic. Um, But certainly within the white working class, because working class has almost become a dirty word and a lot of people that are working class would not count themselves as being working class because they think there's a level of shame to it. Uh, And also, interestingly, a lot of people that are middle class would count themselves as being working class because there's a romanticization of it. Uh, and I think that everything has become very confused and you're going to get that in a very um, fragmented but also eclectic society in which identities are picked up and worn and then discarded when they serve no further use. And it is within that terrain that you need to pinpoint a common aim and common ambitions within a group of people and they need to realise what joins them together rather than what separates them a lot more. I'm just quite quite interested, I guess, in um, yeah, your mid-20s, am I right? Yeah, yeah, 25. So it's, yeah, so you've grown up, I mean, I'm not that much older. <laughs> mm. We've both realistically grown up in a post-Thatcher world. How do you? How have you sought to understand that which came before, and how do you? How do you feel it as tangibly different? I mean, I didn't start thinking about um, social class until I was maybe a teenager, and that was fueled by a sudden recognition of um, inequality and um, the sense that my family were working just as hard as anybody else but had a lot less to show for it in terms of material possessions and financial comfort. Um, and it made me realise how unfair that was and then I, digged, uh, I dug deeper into it um, and went away and self-educated myself on sort of every single possible angle um, that came up. And I think that that is inherently part of being working class in a post-Thatcher country. What's been your experience of, of class? You know, I, for me, just I think it's always important to mm. identify who we are and what experience we're talking from as a background. You know, I grew up in yeah. working class areas of inner London, mm. um, but my parents were professional. Um, mm. And I've developed a whole, a very complex <laughs> relationship with masculinity, mm. with class, with nationality and to be honest mm. I've fled um those London bases um for a career in the arts in, in Norfolk yeah yeah um, 
what's your what's been your class experience and your your background so uh well from a, a single parent family uh with no real contact with my father um struggling quite a bit for money as I grew up uh, and that was the norm and it uh, it didn't seem like money was a thing anyway it doesn't when you're a child you don't really notice it um and then my mum was you know working multiple jobs whilst working on developing her own professional career and uh, since I've left home I'm very glad to say that she's gone on and broadened that and uh, got into her professional career and you know reached a a great level within it and I'm very proud um but I haven't um I haven't left a, a stage in which I'd I'd stop consider myself being working class now I work as a part-time teacher um I'm studying my MA part-time at university and um I would always base class on you uh, on how much you earn to the sense that at some point you'll be able to benefit from capital and until you're at that point and it'll differ for different people in different areas until you reach that point in which you can benefit from capital uh, from the labor of others and make money from money I will still consider you working class yeah you kind of made that that specific statement about the financial power more yeah. than an outlook or an mm. age or any of those other things which are often brought into class discussions. So I think we need to infiltrate certain institutes as working class people. And, uh, you know, a lot of that will come in education, infiltrating academia, infiltrating uh, politics and law, infiltrating publishing even as well. But I think that in order to do that, we need to regain that class consciousness uh, or rekindle it. And I think that that can only come from the ground up. And I think from building from the ground up, you need to start within schooling. You need to be able to talk to young people on a level in which they feel valued for their own experiences. And that experience is seen as just as educationally relevant as uh, that of the sort of cultural heritage of Britain, which is, in my experience in English, um, sort of old classical texts and romanticism and all that sort of thing. Uh, once you once you build that confidence, that self-confidence and experience within young people, infiltration will become natural because they'll suddenly think, well, why can't I have this job within politics? Why can't I have this job within law? And once you've got enough working class people into these different industries uh, and these different institutions then I think that change will naturally happen yeah so it's a lot about raising of of awareness and aspiration of of systems and how mm. systems impact and shape who we are and how we how we grow up and how we who and the the outlook we have and the options we perceive that we may have in adulthood I think white working class people on the whole have since the 1800s or since the 1800s until recently have benefited from having a revolutionary angle to their identity. Um, in the early 1800s, around the time of the Industrial Revolution, uh, this is a time that has been documented um, 
as being a time in which working class people are joined together by a common solidarity and a common interest in challenging capitalism and challenging uh, the capitalists that ruled over them. And so at this point in which we can consider modern working class identity to have begun, it began with a sense of revolutionary ambition. And I think that this has been discarded of certainly since Thatcher and um, after Thatcher, of course, now that we're in this cult of individuality in this country and all the industry has been uh, wiped out, the cornerstones of working class identity have now gone. And in the wake of this, there is a sense of hopelessness because the things that defined people once upon a time can no longer define them. And it's very hard to turn an entire culture and tradition of identity around in such a brief amount of time. Uh, and when you have that sense of hopelessness, you are easily indoctrinated. Uh, and so when the right wing and the far right come along and uh, feed them with this idea of national identity, they will jump onto it because seemingly national identity is the only thing that they have left to grab onto. It is the only thing that can um, unite them as a collective. I believe that all people need some sort of collective identity and it will come to people in lots of different ways. It may be through professions, it may be through hobbies, it may be through all sorts of different things. But for those that have literally nothing to grasp onto, nationality is the only thing left. Uh, and when it is fed by the far right and the right wing, the white working class, particularly men, as we have seen, have jumped onto it. I'm really interested in whether you see there as being any any national identities, whether specifically English, British or anywhere else in the world, which do contain that kind of positive collectivist pride in the community you, you want to create. Do you see nationalism and English nationalism particularly as a problem? Or do you see it as a cultural understanding within that? I think that, um, I think that it is a problem, certainly when it is used by the right and the far right. I think within that understanding and that ideology in which um, the nation is used to, uh, to fuel war and to, um, to fuel racism and to fuel those sorts of ideologies and actions, absolutely it is a problem. Um, in terms of other countries, this is something that I'm still researching into myself. Um, all that we can do in terms of understanding England or taking England for ourselves or giving our own meaning to England um, is to start at the base, in my opinion, is to start within our own communities. Because um, I've always thought to myself, um, and you have to be careful of how you word it, but I've always thought to myself that I do love England because I love the people, the common, normal people of England in my community. And I love the culture, the low culture of England. Um, I love having uh, a local area that uh, I feel embodies me uh, and me being able to carry that forward and even to the dialect of different areas of England. 
the football teams of different areas of England and the, the different cultures that they uh, embody. All these different things make up a nation, but I do not love the way that England is run. And I think that is uh, the key point to make. There is a difference between the nation as a whole, because what is the nation? It's just, it's an island. Um, it's an island with people living on it. You have to face the the horrible history of England and the things that England has done in the past. You have to recognise that, and I believe that the state has to make amends for that. Uh, and that's going to take a long time. That's going to take a hell of a long time, uh, and we have to be ready to go along with that because that is a process of healing for those communities that England has wronged in the past. Uh, but you have to be ready to build on England. You can't um, you can't go on with an idea of England, um, the whole country and everyone that lives in England as inherently uh, wicked because of the wickedness of the state. Not everyone can be proud of a national identity and I don't think that national identity is even a word. I think you have to be proud of your community. And if everyone's proud of their community, then you have an England that is proud of each other rather than proud of the state. Once you become proud of the state, then there's a real problem to address. There's a great line where you're talking about respect and pride as the key drivers often for male identity, particularly, mm. but also for a working class identity and things and you talk about it is when this hunt for respect becomes self-interested and desperate that some men promote prioritize the fast attainment of status over the well-being of themselves and others yeah that you know that captures so much of what you're talking what you're talking about throughout this conversation and throughout the book you know that that sense of the individualistic culture um mm. that promotes promote short-term me first rather than long-term us together um yeah. benefit yeah, one of the really interesting things I think you do in this book is take a comparative look at two texts around masculinity. So on the one hand, Grayson Perry's The Descent of Man, and on another hand, Jordan Peterson's The Twelve Rules of Life. And you look at the different demographics they engage, different mm. um, messages they share, and the need to maybe find a third way between the two. Hmm. What concept of masculinity do you think would be positive for to, to promote within a white working class demographic? I think that um, in order for it to come about, as you mentioned, yeah, I do. I talk about a third approach to talking about masculinity because um, – as much as I do align myself with a lot of the things that Grayson Perry says in his book, I think his approach to it is entirely wrong. Um, and from my experience of uh, the readership of these texts, a lot of uh, white men and particularly white working class men as well have been drawn to Peterson because he embodies that sort of paternalistic role um, that a lot of white working class young men have grown up being used to. Um, he's got that sort of drill sergeant thing about him, uh, that sort of PE teacher that's telling you uh, very roughly and uh, very matter-of-factly how to conduct yourself um, 
And a lot of young men will respond to that because that's what we're used to. And I think that Grace and Perry, it's just certain words that he uses will turn the demographic away from reading his text. And the more that you point a, a finger at a demographic and moralise at a demographic from a position of authorship that Grace and Perry, sure, he was once working class, now he sort of sits within that bourgeois sphere. Once you point at a demographic whilst not being in that demographic anymore yourself, you will not be listened to. And if anything, it's going to push more men away and make men want to react by opposing you. So I don't think that it does the job. Um, I don't think that it it will change any white working class men's minds on things. Um, I think it's going to make men more likely to run to people such as Jordan Peterson. Uh, and I've seen that to be the case. I think there needs to be a third approach, which I call a culture of brotherhood. And it very much aligns itself with an idea of progressive masculinity. Uh, it comes from the idea that masculinity isn't inherently wicked. Uh, it's been used for wicked purposes, war, colonialism, things like that. Um, but it's not inherently wicked. It can be used for the purpose of progression. Um, I don't think that men, for instance, need to be instructed to show more emotions, which has been a discourse that's been thrown around a lot in recent years. I think we need to build a culture in which men aren't judged if they show emotions. The way that we talk to men seems to be more successful when we are fixed and stern, um, and when we inhabit that paternal role that Jordan Peterson has used to his own advantage. But I think this fixed and stern approach must advocate for companionable brotherhood. Um, masculinity basically must be firm on progression and progressive ideas, the sort of things that Perry is talking about, must be retold by working-class men who have a form of relatability. That basis that you come at all of this from of accepting and welcoming the strengths of masculinity is one I find mm. interesting and a little bit uncomfortable in some ways. How do we understand the difficulties of men in contemporary society, given that mm. we can't look at class particularly, because those are problems that, I mean, apart from low educational attainment, those are problems yeah. that run across almost all classes in, in the UK and in the Western mm. world. I'm just really interested mm. in your take on that. Yeah, these are problems that do run across, uh, across all classes, uh, but the, the route to power that men have felt that they must attain through, um, you know, socialisation and uh, the way we are taught to become men varies from class to class. So men that are middle class uh, will be more likely to achieve some sort of professional power. They may uh, go into politics and achieve an actual form of power there, a form of power that will impact the lives of thousands and thousands, if not millions of people. I think that power within working class men um, can't be found anywhere else uh, other than within the local community. Um, and so there's this need to feed the hyper-masculine uh, and that feeds into toxic masculinity. Um, so I think that there's, there, there's that distinction. 
I think that that sense of nurtured competitiveness um, and the need and the drive for status can feed into um, can feed into a positive future because with working class men, I'm talking about these men in particular, there's absolutely no reason that working class men who at the moment really in society have no power or status quite often. I don't think there's any reason why those men shouldn't uh, achieve power or status as long as the second they do, they then use that power and status to share power with the rest of their community and with other demographics. I think that it is necessary in terms of infiltrating institutions um, uh, and middle-class practices and areas, we need to have aggression. Uh, We cannot go about it without a level of aggression, a level of competitiveness. We almost need to play masculinity at its own game. Um, And as long as you are channeling that aggression into something positive, as long as you're aggressive about the fact that you are going to progress and you're going to help other people progress, then you are using masculinity for a progressive future. The second that you lose um, the ability to to channel that aggression and it starts flying everywhere, then then it needs to be reeled in and it needs to be addressed. The, fundamentally, the problem is the individualised um, nature of the aggression. Um, yeah. Rather, it's the direction in which it's pointed rather than yeah. the... It, it itself and I think that's a really really important point you make um mm. running throughout the book and that you very much build it on drawing kind of the conversation to a close now nothing is ever going to be as simple as this but if there was one thing that you could say we should prioritize to move both this conversation forward and to move this um you know the the opportunities forward for a white working class um male demographic what would mm. what would you what would you recommend? I think the most important place to start is always going to be education um, and uh, almost reimagining the structures of education in this country, taking it away from um, what we have it as being at the moment, which is a largely a cultural heritage model um, insisted upon by you know conservative ministers of um, appreciating uh, the pastoral England um, of a bygone time, uh, and a very middle-class idea of education. And I think that as a lot of children do not realise the places uh, that they have been born within and the class that they have been born within until later, uh, education is the most important place to start feeding working-class people with the confidence that they can do anything that they want to and that they can make a genuine change within the country. And I think this is a project that is going to take decades. Uh, There is no simple quick fix, um, but in terms of education, you make the start there. I think that education is basically the key to building a future that is constructed by critical thinking, knowledge, awareness of the nuances of this argument and therefore more accepting and in general just uh, a more properly 
socialist um, Britain. Tommy Sissons, thank you so much. No, thank you for having me. A Small Man's England is available, I think, from all major booksellers. Um, it's published by Repeater Press. Um, uh, it's so worth a read. It's a fascinating book. And I will look forward to all of the work that you've got coming ahead of you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. And thanks to Tommy and Sam for the fantastic conversation. If you have any questions or you want to get in touch, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Writers Centre. We're on Facebook. And if you head over to the National Centre for Writing website, you can find out more about the Escalator Talent Development Scheme and all of our other events, workshops and opportunities. As a UK registered charity, we rely on the generosity of our supporters to make our work possible. You can make a donation over on our website by going to the Support Us page. Don't forget to subscribe, rate and review the podcast because it helps other people to find us. Thanks again. Keep writing and we'll catch you on the next episode. Mm -hmm.